0: On Sunday mornings, we're looking together at a section of Matthew's Gospel, chapters 8 to 10. Matthew, the writer of the Gospel, was one of Jesus' disciples. He lived with Jesus for three and a half years. He heard firsthand what Jesus said and saw firsthand what Jesus did, and he wrote it down. He was an eyewitness testimony. Last week I had a great conversation with someone after one of the services where they said to me that I was the first minister they had heard that had claimed that what was written in the Gospels was true, as in literal, factual record of what Jesus did. And they said to me, do you really believe that he did these things? I said, well, it is the most credible explanation given the manuscript evidence and the provenance and all these kind of things. And he said, but how can you believe that? I said, well, do you believe that a God could do that? And he said, well, if God is real, yes, it's real. Of course, it's true, I think, that when you read these gospel accounts, and if Jesus did you know, cure a woman with an incurable illness because she touched his cloak and the power came out of him with a word. If he was able to go into the room of an ordinary family and take a child by the hand and raise her from death to life. If he was able to put demons out of people who were the epitome of the living dead, deranged and out of their minds. If he was able to stand on the prow of a ship and with the words, be still, take out the force of the wind and the swell of the sea then there is no other conclusion if Matthew is recording what he saw that this man is God. So Matthew writes what he heard and saw. On his desk, he's got a pad of paper and a pen. And also on his desk, almost certainly, he has the Old Testament Scriptures. And again and again, he refers to them implicitly or explicitly. And when he's writing this bit in Matthew chapter Uh, 9 verses 35 to 38, he must have been reading Ezekiel's prophecy. And we're going to read that first. As it happens, and in God's remarkably gracious way, uh, I happen to be preaching on Ezekiel chapter 34 next Sunday night, which means I can correct any mistakes I make today. So Ezekiel chapter 34 verses 1 to 16, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds Of Israel. And the shepherds of Israel are the spiritual leaders of God's people then. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, or the ministers, if you like, of God's people then. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, and you do not feed the sheep. with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord, as I live, declares the Lord God. Surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will acquire my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land, and I will feed them in the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed and I will bring up, bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy, I will feed them in justice. Now, turn forward to Matthew's gospel, chapter 9, verses 35 to 38, a short yet pivotal section in Matthew's gospel. And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers or workers into the harvest. Now, three points on the service sheet. It's always comforting when there are three. Number one, the shepherd king's message and mission. Now, the only place I would like to be a minister other than here is in uh, St. Andrews, but for all the wrong reasons, principally golf. For a hundred pounds a year, if you are a resident of St. Andrews and a local clergyman, you can play on any of the courses at any time. <laughs> it's wonderful now the old course is the most famous golf course in the world i guess the 18th hole is perhaps the most famous hole in golf complete with the aptly named valley of sin at the entrance to the green the first and 18th holes are bisected by a stream called the Swilkenburn, burn a little stream that has claimed many a golf ball over the years including that of tiger woods on two occasions and just off the 18th tee, there is a famous bridge called the Swilkin Bridge, where if you are anyone in golf, Jack Nicholas, Tom Watson, Arnold Palmer, and many other famous golfers have stood for the press on that bridge in the last round they have played in the Open. And this little section in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 35 to 38, is like a little bridge that connects two parts of the Gospel. And the section in Matthew we are looking at is chapters 8, 9, and 10. And chapter 8, 1 to nine thirty four, that's on the left-hand side of the bridge, the first part of the section from chapters 8 to chapter 10, focuses our attention on the message and mission of Jesus, on his authority, on his power, and what his kingdom is like. It is all about the message and mission of the king. That's on the left-hand side of the bridge. And on the other side of the bridge, chapter 10, which we come to from next week, the focus shifts from the ministry and mission of the king to the ministry and mission of the apostles. And as Jesus sends them out and commissions them, the apostles founded the church on the basis of their testimony. And so on the right-hand side of the bridge, it's not just the ministry and mission of the apostles, but the ministry and mission of the church and the ministry and mission of this church. And of you, as Christians, it's really important that we see today in this little bridge section both sides of the bridge. And when I work through these verses with us this morning, you're going to think that, is he talking about the mission of Jesus, or is he talking about the mission of us? Is he talking about the authority of Jesus to bring people to faith in him, or is he talking about us going out and telling? Well, he's talking about both because the two fuse together. When you're standing in the middle of that bridge, you can embrace both. Sides. But the logic is important that the left hand side must come before the right hand side. It's got to be Jesus who is preeminent. It's got to be his mission that we engage in. And there's a a very interesting way of understanding what faithfulness in the Christian life is. It's not him participating in what we want that mission to be, it's us participating in what he says his mission is. And that's a simple equation that we often get wrong in our lives, and the church often gets wrong. It is Jesus' mission with his authority behind it, and that is what we are called to participate in him. And remember that his mission is the mission that goes with the stuff, like the man who stands on the prow of a boat and stills a storm, the one who can touch people and they rise from the dead, the one who himself rose from the dead. It's got all the power of God invested in it. Now, let's read uh, verse 35. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. Jesus is a speaker. He is a man with a message. He has come with a message to speak. So, at the very heart of Jesus' mission and ministry is what he has come to say The two words here are teaching and proclaiming or telling out the gospel of the kingdom. Preaching, teaching, speaking, and telling. Now, what exactly is the gospel of the kingdom? And it is vitally important that we are absolutely clear as to what it is. Why? Because it is the gospel of the kingdom that bears with it and carries with it the authority of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord Jesus precisely defines what he means by the gospel. And we might say, or many people do say, that the gospel is this, that, or the other. But Jesus says it's this, and this is what's going to change people's lives. So, what is the gospel of the kingdom? For the start, it is good news. The word gospel simply means good news. What good news? That with Jesus, when he came to the earth, the everlasting kingdom of God, with Jesus as its king, has broken into this world. And the urgent need of all people and the offer to all people— is to have their sins forgiven through Jesus and thus enter into the everlasting kingdom of God and share in all the privileges of citizenship of that kingdom that brought a smile to their faces when they said, I do, or yes. And to have an inheritance where they will live and all believing people will live in a world, a new creation without sin and sickness and grief and death and the devil. Very rarely in my life would I, in all honesty, be able to pray the prayer, Come, Lord Jesus, come. On Monday, as we watched these events unfold, just for a moment, I thought, Jesus, you need to come and stop all this terrible stuff. Now that is the gospel of the kingdom. Now, stand back and think of it. This is Jesus, God with all the authority as king of kings. He spoke this gospel, calling all men and women to repentance and faith in him for the forgiveness of their sins. He disarmed them when they said, we do not need forgiven and we are good enough by freely giving his own life for our forgiveness. And when people believe in him for the forgiveness of their sins, they are rested or moved or translated supernaturally By the indwelling Spirit of Jesus, from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of God, they become citizens of God's kingdom, children of God. And all the privileges of salvation are theirs, and the glorious inheritance of the new creation. That is the gospel of the kingdom. There is no other gospel written anywhere in the pages of the Bible than that. And there is no other gospel that is in the world attended by the power of the Spirit of God. And that is the message of the king. And if Jesus Christ is to be the king and the head of the church... That is the message, or should be, of the church. Now, Jesus not only spoke the good news of the kingdom, he healed every disease and every affliction. Why did Jesus heal every disease and every sickness? In his own words, again and again, to establish his authority, his divine authority to forgive sins, and to show us, to give us a foretaste of what the everlasting kingdom of God will one day be like when he returns. His priority was preaching, was telling people that their sins can be forgiven. Just think of this. Every single person that Jesus healed when he walked on the earth lay down and died. So what's he doing? Is he playing with them? He said, I am showing you that I am God. And I am showing you that the world that my kingdom citizens will inherit, our priority is to proclaim the gospel, forgiveness of sins. That's what saves people, clear gospel convictions. You and I do not have the authority or power to take a dead child by the hand and raise her to life. That was Jesus, and the apostles in order that they might rise above us as the king and founders of the church. It's what our creeds say. Jesus Christ is the king and the head of the church. We are an apostolic church, committed to the apostles' teaching, clear convictions, but never devoid of gospel compassion. When Jesus, verse 36, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. When Jesus goes round the towns and villages, his assessment of the crowds is that they are harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And uh, yesterday, I was cycling in the Pentlands, far too long, so much so that I couldn't sleep last night. I was too sore, too old for this. And helpfully, God provided many, many sheep on the hills, to help me think about Ezekiel. And true to form, these sheep were uh, illustrating the the characteristics of sheep harassed and helpless, um, running in front of our bicycles and all sorts of daft things. Now, what does it mean to have a sheep without a shepherd? Okay, shepherd doesn't feed them. Just doesn't feed them and he's starved to death. Well, the shepherd does feed them, but he doesn't feed them the proper food. He feeds them stuff that was bad for them or the shepherd doesn't fix the gates on the sheepfold, and the wolves get in and bite their throats. Jesus has compassion on them because they are like sheep without a shepherd, and he is quoting from Ezekiel. The phrase sheep without a shepherd means the people of God without strong spiritual leadership. The people of God have leaders, But these leaders are not shepherding them. They are not leading them clearly and strongly. They are not feeding them properly. They are not leading them in straight paths, because they are not proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. We might say the people of God are being led by leaders without clear gospel convictions, and that really gets under the skin of the Lord Jesus. It moves him. It makes him angry even. The world translated compassion in the Bible's when he saw the crowds, Jesus had compassion is not a a great translation. What it really means is something like gut-wrenching anguish. That's the depth of feeling Jesus had. Charles Spurgeon Spurgeon said this, commenting on the verse, Jesus' sympathies were awakened. He could not look upon a mass of people with an indifferent countenance. His inmost soul was stirred, a deep-rooted consciousness of need. Now, what does the Lord Jesus see when he looks at Scotland today? When he saw the crowds, and he's first addressing believing people, if you like, people in churches. When he saw the crowds, the people in churches up and down our land this morning, in many instances, far more than we might think, Jesus has compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He will look in many churches in the city, and he will look at sheep going home harassed and helpless because their shepherd has told them a gospel that is not the gospel of the king. And I often shudder when I revisit my ordination vows as a minister. What if on one Sunday I do not preach or make clear the gospel of the king, and somebody... For the only time in their life has come in and goes. Jesus looks at the harassed and helpless people in churches in Scotland this morning, and he does not judge them. His heart goes out to them in compassion. And beyond the church, the people of God to all people, his messages for all people, he sees them wandering like sheep without a shepherd. People who aren't believers, people going up and down the streets of Morningside... But just think of Morningside. Think of the footfall this morning. Sheep without a shepherd. Drifting through life. For what? To end up in a grave? My favorite cemetery in Edinburgh is Currie Kirk. We actually cycled past it yesterday and I encouraged the others to stop for a look, but they went up for that. Just buried somebody there two weeks ago, a close friend of mine. Heather and Mark's, Heather's dad, who's here this morning. Next to his grave, Molly and Bertie Kernahan, whose daughter June was sitting here this morning, who's become a Christian. And Robert, on their grave, the Lord Jesus is my shepherd in life and in death and for eternity. What a wonderful thing on a tombstone. All these people. And the Lord Jesus has compassion on them because they are sheep without a shepherd. In Scotland this morning, one and a half percent of the population of this country have contact with a living church. I don't think many of us believe these statistics. I'm discussing with a church in Aberdeen at the moment about them being a training church. And I'm telling them that the church is bankrupt. And they say it's not, it's full. And it is full in that church and the church next door. And I said to them, how many people do you think in Aberdeen are in church this morning? They said 20 percent, more like one and a half. That's a lot of sheep wandering without a shepherd. And Jesus' heart goes out to them. One of the most moving uh, moments in my Christian life was when we were in London and the Australian evangelist John Chapman, or Chapel was speaking in St. Helens in the city. He's, he, moved, he, he moved in when he grew old to the largest retirement home he could find in Sydney, because, as he said, every day someone left at an ambulance and didn't come back. He wanted to tell them about Jesus. He spoke that night in St. Helens carefully, conscious, I think, of the danger of emotional manipulation. That's easy to do from behind a lectern. He was trying to convey what it's like to be harassed and helpless, like a sheep without a shepherd. What life is like for someone who does not have the Lord Jesus as their shepherd. Think of them. This is their tombstone the Lord Jesus was not my shepherd. I am in terrible want. No one leads me beside still waters. I cannot work out what life is about. I'm wandering around bereft. No one leads me in the path of righteousness. I'm an aimless wanderer. And when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, terrible fear grips hold on me because I am totally on my own. And there is no prospect of my dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. And without pressing the point any further, for no reason, let me tell you that when I watch people walking through the valley of the shadow of death, as I have done on a number of occasions, the difference between a believer. And an unbeliever is light and day. On the face of an unbeliever, in their words, terrible fear grips hold on them because they are all alone. And in the face of a believer, the Lord Jesus. Now, that cannot be words that changes someone's radiance or face or manner. Can't be words, can't be comforting verses, can it? Consciousness of need. Clear gospel conviction and gospel heart. Now, we are in danger of getting to the right-hand side of the Swilkin Bridge. Remember, remember this, that Jesus is the shepherd king. You guys remember that. I am your under-shepherd, but Jesus is your shepherd. and that's just this little church. Think of the church in Scotland who's in charge? Jesus. It's his church. He's the shepherd king. And what a wonderful thing it is when the Old Testament fuses together the kingship of Jesus with a shepherd. Think of David in the Old Testament. We, f- we think of David as the king, but he was a shepherd boy the Lord Jesus, shepherd and king. That's whose mission we are called. And you see what's happening by the Holy Spirit. What God wants to put into his people is clear conviction and compassion for the state of the church and the state of people. And when you have clear conviction without compassion, It doesn't sound right. And when you have compassion without clear conviction, well, it's not a gospel. When you have both, it's a powerful thing. Now, point number two, quickly. A plentiful harvest, but not enough workers. Then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And and of course, at the end of Point one at the end of verse uh, thirty-five and thirty-six. We're all a bit gloomy and down as we think of Scotland. I mean, it's not like a great landscape spiritually, is it? It's really not. Events of this past week just compound that. And then all of a sudden, when the Lord Jesus gets us to face up to reality, He says, "Look, the harvest is plentiful." No, it's not. Yes, it is. The harvest is plentiful. I have a friend, William McKenzie, who runs Christian Focus Publications, and the headquarters of Christian Focus is in Tain, in uh, Rossshire, and they have a large farm, and uh, uh, I remember being there early September, and the harvest was ready to be gathered in. I really was. That might sound like a nice illustration, but I really was there, and uh, yesterday in the Pentlands, all the fields were green, but the harvest wasn't yet ready to come in. The harvest is plentiful, And you think of that, and it's a good illustration. You think of standing in a country uh, up in Easter Ross, which is beautiful farmland, um, and, and you look out and you see all these fields ripe for harvest in the wind with the sky. It's a beautiful sight. It's a picture of what? Hope. It does your soul good to see it of promise, of fruitfulness, a ripe harvest ready to be gathered in. Now, the Lord Jesus says to you and me in the church in Scotland today, the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. In the world, the harvest is plentiful. We had Inger here with us this week. She was telling us about parts of the world that people didn't even think was possible the harvest could be brought in from, but it is. Scotland, the harvest is plentiful. Edinburgh, the harvest is plentiful. Morningside, the harvest is plentiful. But you don't believe that, do you? I don't believe it. And yet the Lord Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I have sheep who are not yet in the fold who will be. Who are they? They might be your neighbors. They might be the people you work with. This is not a call to have more gospel ministers, although it is that. It's a call to us all to be out there speaking the gospel wherever we are. And remember, the left-hand side of the bridge, the Lord Jesus is already there with his power and his authority. It is so encouraging to hear Jesus speak in these terms. The harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. And why am I waggling on that T? I just want to stop there before we get to but the workers are few and we all go gloomy again. Somebody this week, I was writing to various people in the church. You can imagine why, just trying to encourage them. And somebody came back to me and said, it's all a disaster. I know what they mean. I know what they mean. But the harvest is plentiful. Now, thinking back to that harvest scene in Easter Ross, I uh, was allowed by William to go into his combine harvester. I did ask if I could drive it, and he said no. No. And uh, uh, that's where these illustrations from the Bible fall apart, because in the ancient world, they didn't have combine harvesters. They had people to bring in the harvest with scythes. And you can imagine them all going out there uh, day and night, uh, working uh, to bring in that harvest. And it's a great picture in the ancient world. We think of combine harvesters, and only one driver drives that. But in the ancient world, it was everybody out there with a scythe, everybody working together to bring in the harvest. That's what churches do. You know, it's great, you guys, this morning, making these promises here with these people. That's what it's all about. We've had two or three people in the last couple of weeks become Christians, which is wonderful. And it's been wonderful for me to see the pleasure on the faces of the people who have been privileged to bring them in. They know it's the Lord Jesus on the left side of the bridge he's done it, but they've been on the other side and they've connected at the top of the bridge. It's a wonderful thing. But the workers are few. the workers are few. Now, we have strong connections with Wycliffe Bible Translators. It is amazing what God has done through that organization, but the work is not yet done. Here are some facts to bamboozle us. There are 6,918 languages in the world today. Thank the Lord there'll only be one in the new creation. 6918. Only 513 have a complete Bible facing a task unfinished. That's right, isn't it? Worldwide, 98 million people have no access to any scripture at all in their heart language. The Wycliffe website is currently running around 220 vacant positions. Gospel workers in China, the vacant positions list is somewhere around two to 3,000. Because the harvest is ready. And the workers are few. Now, just in case any of you get on a plane, and it might be that you do soon, I guess the seeds of getting on a plane to do global mission have been sown in just that way. The harvest is plentiful here, and perhaps a little less clear to see when it will become ripe. But in your workplaces, in schools, in universities, in your streets, the Lord Jesus' promise is just as true. The harvest is plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. Some of you have come to live in a particular community close to here in the city and you've all arrived at the same time and you're all Christians. Five or six of you in a community and you are beginning to bring in the harvest. It's just a little snapshot. Who are the workers though? Who will be the leaders? Who will be the small group leaders, the children's teachers in these churches? It's not about ministers. It's not, not about them, but it's not just about them. All of these guys standing up here, Maybe only, well, none of you are going to be ministers. In the first service, Cheeks, Ian is going to be a minister. But they're all workers in the harvest. Thirdly, lastly, praying to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. That brings us to verse 38. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out. Now, the point that I want to finish the sermon on, having God willing, by the Holy Spirit, motivated us to see the need and feel the need, is to go. Go. But the Lord Jesus says, pray. And he brings us back down to earth again. Pray, pray, pray. Pray that I will send out workers into... Pray to the Lord of the harvest, that's Jesus, that he will send out workers into the harvest field. Not go, pray. Go in time, first pray. You might be the answer to the prayer. But pray first, then go. Why pray before you go? Because it is Jesus who sends out workers into the harvest field. He wants to be on the selection panel. He wants to know before he sends you, David, for example, into a school to teach kids that you will teach them the gospel of the kingdom. He wants to know. He wants to hold on from one side of the bridge to your hand on the other. So pray that he will call out people like that to go into the harvest field. And the church, of course, has a God-given role to discern someone's suitability for ministry. The church has a God-given role to encourage each of our new members to serve with the gifts that God has given them. But their job is to prayerfully discern if Jesus is choosing and sending them. How do you know? How do you know if Jesus is calling a gospel worker of whatever form? Because they share the convictions of the king, and they share the compassion of the king. I want you to remember this today, and I think probably you need this more than anything else. The harvest is plentiful. Believe that. Believe that. Believe the promises. Take to heart the reality stuff. But the harvest is plentiful. The Lord Jesus says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I have many sheep who are not yet in the sheepfold that I will bring in. And the wonderful, wonderful privilege of being a citizen of the kingdom that God gives to us is I want you to be the ones who are able to go out into the harvest fields and to bring them in. Isn't that great? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these great words, this image of a bridge, one side held on to the other. And Lord, we just want to take a moment at the end of the service to pray what your Son asks us to pray, that you would send out laborers and workers into the harvest fields of the world, some of the toughest countries in the world where there is a harvest of souls to be brought in, and that now begins to include these islands in which we live where apathy and indifference is so widespread, will you raise up and send out many gospel workers? We pray, Lord, again for Andy and Kyrene this morning as they preach and vision day up in Charleston. And, Lord, as we have that housing scheme in our minds, what a great need And what a great gospel opportunity. Thank you for calling and sending him there. But Lord, it's not just about ministry. It's not mostly about ministry. It's about all of us in our different spheres of work and service. You call us to mission, but not our own mission with our own message. You call us to Christ's mission with his message, the gospel of the kingdom. Help us never to lose touch with him, Help us never to lose our convictions, and help us, Lord, never, ever, ever to lose the deep-hearted, gut-wrenching compassion of the Lord Jesus. When he sees sheep who are without a shepherd, his heart is so moved. May that be so for all of us, for his sake. Amen.